Chapter Twenty Eight of Dread: A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Dread, Chapter Twenty Eight, Magnolia Grove. Judge Clayton was not mistaken in supposing that his son would contemplate the issue of the case he had defended with satisfaction. As we have already intimated, Clayton was somewhat averse to the practice of the law. Regard for the feeling of his father had led him to resolve that he would at least give it a fair trial. His own turn of mind would have led him to some work of more immediate and practical philanthropy. He would have much preferred to retire to his own estate, to devote himself with his sister to the education of his servants. But he felt that he could not, with due regard to his father's feelings, do this until he had given professional life a fair trial. After the scene of the trial which we have described, he returned to his business, and Anne solicited Nina to accompany her for a few weeks to their plantation at Magnolia Grove whither, as duty-bound, we may follow her. Our readers will therefore be pleased to find themselves transported to the shady side of a veranda belonging to Clayton's establishment at Magnolia Grove. The place derived its name from a group of these beautiful trees in the centre of which the house was situated. It was a long, low cottage, surrounded by deep verandas, festooned with an exuberance of those climbing plants which are so splendid in the southern latitude. The range of apartments which opened on the veranda where Anne and Nina were sitting were darkened to exclude the flies, but the doors, standing open, gave picture-like gleams of the interior. The white matted floors, light bamboo furniture, couches covered with glazed white linen, and the large vases of roses disposed here and there, where the light would fall upon them, presented a background of inviting coolness. It was early in the morning, and the two ladies were enjoying the luxury of a tete-a-tete -tete breakfast, before the sun had yet dried the heavy dews which give such freshness to the morning air. A small table which stood between them was spread with choice fruits, arranged on dishes in green leaves. A pitcher of iced milk and a delicate little tete-a-tete -tete coffee service, dispensing the perfume of the most fragrant coffee. Nor were they wanting those small delicate biscuits and some of those curious forms of cornbread of the manufacture of which every southern cook is so justly proud nor should we omit the central vase of monthly roses of every shade of color, the daily arrangement of which was the special delight of Anne's brown little waiting-maid, Latisse. Anne Clayton, in a fresh white morning wrapper, with her pure, healthy complexion, fine teeth, and frank, beaming smile, looked like a queenly damask rose. A queen she really was on her own plantation, reigning by the strongest of all powers, that of love. The African race have large ideality and veneration, and in no drawing-room could Anne's beauty and grace, her fine manners and carriage, secure a more appreciating and unlimited admiration and devotion. The Negro race, with many of the faults of children, unite many of their most amiable qualities in the simplicity and confidingness with which they yield themselves up 
in admiration of a superior friend. Nina had been there but a day, yet could not fail to read in the eyes of all how absolute was the reign which Anne held over their affections. "'How delightful the smell of this magnolia blossom,' said Nina. "'Oh, I'm glad that you waked me so early, Anne.' "'Yes,' said Anne. "'In this climate early rising becomes a necessary of life "'to those who mean to have any real positive pleasure in it, "'and I'm one of the sort that must have positive pleasures. "'Merely negative rest, lassitude, and dreaming are not enough for me. "'I want to feel that I'm alive and that I accomplish something.' "'Yes, I see,' said Nana. "'You are not nominally like me, but really, housekeeper. "'What wonderful skill you seem to have. "'Is it possible that you keep nothing locked up here?' "'No,' said Anne. "'Nothing. "'I am released from the power of keys, thank fortune. "'When I first came here, everybody told me it was sheer madness to try such a thing.' "'But I told them that I was determined to do it, and Edward upheld me in it, "'and you can see how well I've succeeded.' "'Indeed,' said Nana, "'you must have magic power, "'for I never saw a household move on so harmoniously. "'All your servants seem to think and contrive "'and take an interest in what they are doing. "'How did you begin? What did you do?' "'Well,' said Anne, "'I'll tell you the history of the plantation.' In the first place, it belonged to Mama's uncle, and not to spoil the story for relations' sake, I must say he was a dissipated, unprincipled man. He lived a perfectly heathen life here, in the most shocking way you can imagine. And so the poor creatures who were under him were worse heathen than he. He lived with a quadroon woman, who was violent-tempered, and when angry, ferociously cruel, and so the servants were constantly passing from the extreme of indulgence to the extreme of cruelty. You can scarce have an idea of the state we found them in. My heart almost failed me. But Edward said, Don't give up, Anne. Try the good that is in them. Well, I confess, it seemed very much as it seemed to me when I was once at a water-cure establishment. Patients would be brought in languid, pale, cold, half-dead, and it appeared as if it would kill them to apply cold water. But somehow or other, there was a vital power in them that reacted under it. Well, just so it was with my servants. I called them all together, and I said to them, Now, people have always said that you are the greatest thieves in the world, that there is no managing you except by locking up everything from you. But I think differently. I have an idea that you can be trusted. I have been telling people that they don't know how much good there is in you, and now, just to show them what you can do, I'm going to begin to leave the closets and doors and everything unlocked, and I shall not watch you. You can take my things if you choose, and if after a time I find that you can't be trusted, I shall go back to the old way. Well, my dear... I wouldn't have believed myself that the thing would have answered so well. In the first place, approbativeness is a stronger principle with the African race than almost any other. They like to be thought well of. Immediately there was the greatest spirit in the house, for the poor creatures, having suddenly made the discovery that somebody thought they were to be trusted, were very anxious to keep up the reputation. The elder ones watched the younger, and in fact, my dear, I had very little trouble. 
the children at first troubled me going into my store closet and getting the cake notwithstanding very spirited government on the part of the mammies so i called my family in session again and said that their conduct had confirmed my good opinion that i always knew they could be trusted and that my friends were astonished to hear how well they did but that i had observed that some of the children probably had taken my cake now you know said i that i have no objection to your having some if any of you would enjoy a piece of cake i shall be happy to give it to them but it is not agreeable to have things in my closet fingered over i shall therefore set a plate of cake out every day and anybody that wishes to take some i hope will take that well my dear my plate of cake stood there and dried you won't believe me but in fact it wasn't touched well said dinah i shouldn't think you could have had our tom tit here why really this goes beyond the virtue of white children my dear it isn't such a luxury to white children to be thought well of and have character you must take that into account it was a taste of a new kind of pleasure made attractive by its novelty yes said nana i have something in me which makes me feel this would be the right way i know it would be with me there's nothing like confidence if a person trusts me i'm bound yet said anne i can't get the ladies of my acquaintance to believe in it they see how i get along but they insist upon it that it's some secret magic or art of mine well it is so said dinah such things are just like the divining rod they won't work in every hand it takes a real generous warm-hearted woman like you anne but could you carry your system through your plantation as well as your house the field hands were more difficult to manage on some accounts said anne but the same principle prevailed with them edward tried all he could to awaken self-respect now i counseled that we should endeavor to form some decent habits before we built the cabins over i told him they could not appreciate cleanliness and order very likely they cannot he said but we are not to suppose it and he gave orders immediately for that pretty row of cottages you saw down at the quarters he put up a large bathing establishment yet he did not enforce at first personal cleanliness by strict rules those who began to improve first were encouraged and noticed and as they found this a passport to favor the thing took rapidly it required a great while to teach them how to be consistently orderly and cleanly even after the first desire had been awakened because it isn't every one that likes neatness and order who has the forethought and skill to secure it but there has been a steady progress in these respects one curious peculiarity of edward's management gives rise to a good many droll scenes he has instituted a sort of jury trial among them there are certain rules for the order and well-being of the plantation which all agree to abide by and in all offences the man is tried by a jury of his peers mr smith our agent says that these scenes are sometimes very diverting but on the whole there's a good deal of shrewdness and sense manifested but he says that in general they incline much more to severity than he would you see the poor creatures have been so barbarized by the way they have been treated in past times that it has made them hard and harsh 
i assure you nina i never appreciated the wisdom of god in the laws which he made for the jews in the wilderness as i have since i have tried the experiment myself of trying to bring a set of slaves out of barbarism now this that i am telling you is the fairest side of the story i can't begin to tell you the thousand difficulties and trials which we have encountered in it sometimes i have been almost worn out and discouraged but then i think if there is a missionary work in this world it is this and what do your neighbors think about it said nina well said anne they are all very polite well-bred people the families with whom we associate and such people of course would never think of interfering or expressing a difference of opinion in any very open way but i have the impression that they regard it with suspicion they sometimes let fall words which make me think they do it's a way of proceeding which very few would adopt because it is not a money-making operation by any means the plantation barely pays for itself because edward makes that quite a secondary consideration the thing which excites the most murmuring is our teaching them to read i teach the children myself two hours every day because i think this would be less likely to be an offence than if i should hire a teacher mr smith teaches any of the grown men who are willing to take the trouble to learn any man who performs a certain amount of labor can secure to himself two or three hours a day to spend as he chooses and many do choose to learn some of the men and the women have become quite good readers and clayton is constantly sending books for them this i am afraid gives great offence it is against the law to do it but as unjust laws are sometimes lived down we thought we would test the practicability of doing this there was some complaint made of our servants because they have not the servile subdued air which commonly marks the slave but look speak and act as if they respected themselves i am sometimes afraid that we shall have trouble but then i hope for the best what does mr clayton expect to be the end of all this said nina why i think edward has the idea that one of these days they may be emancipated on the soil just as the serfs were in england it looks to me rather hopeless i must say but he says the best way is for some one to begin and set an example of what ought to be done and he hopes that in time it will be generally followed it would if all men were like him but there lies my doubt the number of those who would pursue such a disinterested course is very small but who comes there upon my word if it isn't my particular admirer mr bradshaw as anne said this a very gentlemanly middle-aged man came up on horseback on the carriage drive which passed in front of the veranda he bore in his hand a large bunch of different colored roses and alighting and delivering his horse to his servant came up the steps and presented it to anne there said he are the first fruits of my roses in the garden that i started in rosedale beautiful said anne taking them allow me to present to you miss gordon miss gordon you're most obedient said mr bradshaw bowing obsequiously you're just in season mr bradshaw for i'm sure you couldn't have had your breakfast before you started so sit down and help us with ours thank you miss anne the offer is too tempting to be refused and he soon established himself as a third at the little table and made himself very sociable 
Well, Miss Anne, how do all your plans proceed, all your benevolences and cares? I hope your angel ministrations don't exhaust you. Not at all, Mr. Bradshaw. Do I look like it? No, indeed, but such energy is perfectly astonishing to us all. Nina's practiced eye observed that Mr. Bradshaw had that particular nervous, restless air which belongs to a man who is charged with a particular message and finds himself unexpectedly blockaded by the presence of a third person. So, after breakfast, exclaiming that she had left her crochet needle in her apartment and resisting Anne's offer to send a servant for it by declaring that nobody could find it but herself, she left the veranda. Mr. Bradshaw had been an old family friend for many years and stood with Anne almost on an easy footing of a relation which gave him the liberty of speaking with freedom. The moment the door of the parlor was closed after Nina, he drew a chair near Anne and sat down with the unmistakable air of a man who is going into a confidential communication. The fact is, my dear Miss Clayton, I have something on my mind that I want to tell you, and I hope you will think my long friendship for the family a sufficient warrant for my speaking on matters which really belong chiefly to yourself. The fact is, my dear Miss Clayton, I was at a small dinner party of gentlemen the other day at Colonel Grandin's. There was a little select set there, you know, the Howards and the Elliots and the Howlands and so on, and the conversation happened to turn upon your brother. Now, there was very greatest respect for him. They seemed to have the highest possible regard for his motives, but still they felt that he was going on a very dangerous course. Dangerous? said Anne, a little startled. Yes, really dangerous, and I think so myself, though I perhaps don't feel as strongly as some do. Really? said Anne. I'm quite at a loss. My dear Miss Anne, it's these improvements, you know, which you are making. Don't misapprehend me. Admirable, very admirable in themselves, done from the most charming of motives, Miss Anne. But dangerous, dangerous. The solemn, mysterious manner in which these last words were pronounced made Anne laugh, but when she saw the expression of real concern on the face of her good friend, she checked herself and said, "'Pray explain yourself. I don't understand you.' "'Why, Miss Anne, it's just here. We appreciate your humanity and your self-denial and your indulgence to your servants. Everybody is of opinion that it's admirable.' You're really quite a model for us all. But when it comes to teaching them to read and write, Miss Anne, he said, lowering his voice, I think you don't consider what a dangerous weapon you're putting into their hands. The knowledge will spread on to the other plantations. Bright niggers will pick it up, for the very fellows who are most dangerous are the very ones who will be sure to learn. What if they should? Why, my dear Miss Anne, the facilities that it will afford them for combinations, for insurrections. You see, Miss Anne, I read a story once of a man who made a cork leg with such wonderful accuracy that it would walk of itself. And when he got it on, he couldn't stop its walking. It walked him to death. Actually did. Walked him uphill and down dale till the poor man fell down exhausted. And then it ran off with his body, and it's running with its skeleton to this day, I believe. 
and good-natured mr bradshaw conceived such a ridiculous idea at this stage of his narrative that he leaned back in his chair and laughed heartily wiping his perspiring face with a cambric pocket handkerchief really mr bradshaw it's a very amusing idea but i don't see the analogy why don't you see you begin teaching niggers and having reading and writing and all these things going on and they begin to open their eyes and look round and think and they are having opinions of their own they won't take yours and they want to rise directly and if they can't rise why they are all discontented and there's the what's his name to pay with them then come conspiracies and insurrections no matter how well you treat them and now we south carolinians have had experience in this matter you must excuse us but it is a terrible subject with us why the leaders of that conspiracy all of them were fellows who could read and write and who had nothing in the world to wish for in the way of comfort treated with every consideration by their masters it is a most melancholy chapter in human nature it shows that there is no trust to be placed in them and now the best way to get along with negroes in my opinion is to make them happy give them plenty to eat and drink and wear and keep them amused and excited and don't work them too hard i think it's a great deal better than this kind of exciting instruction mind he said seeing that anne was going to interrupt him mind now i'd have religious instruction of course now this system of oral instruction teaching them hymns and passages of scripture suited to their particular condition it's just the thing it isn't so liable to these dangers i'll hope you excuse me miss anne but the gentlemen really feel very serious about these things they find it's affecting their own negroes you know somehow everything goes round from one plantation to another and one of them said that he had a very smart man who is married to one of your women and he actually found him with a spelling book sitting out under a tree he said if the man had had a rifle he wouldn't have been more alarmed because the man was just one of those sharp resolute fellows that if he knew how to read and write there's no knowing what he would do well now you see how it is he takes the spelling book away and he tells him he will give him nine and thirty if he ever finds him with it again what's the consequence why the consequence is the man sulks and gets ugly and he has to sell him that's the way it's operating well then said anne looking somewhat puzzled i will strictly forbid our people to allow spelling books to go out of their hands or to communicate any of these things off the plantation oh i tell you miss anne you can't do it you don't know the passion in human nature for anything that is forbidden now i believe it's more that than love of reading you can't shut up such an experiment as you are making here it's just like a fire it will blaze it will catch on all the plantations round and i assure you it's a matter of life and death with us you smile miss anne but it's so really my dear mr bradshaw you could not have addressed me on a more unpleasant subject i am sorry to excite the apprehension of our neighbors but uh, give me leave to remind you also miss anne that the teaching of slaves to read and write is an offence to which a severe penalty is attached by the laws i thought said anne that such barbarous laws were a dead letter in a christian community 
and that the best tribute i could pay to its christianity was practically to disregard them by no means miss anne by no means why look at us here in south carolina the negroes are three to one over the whites now will it do to give them the further advantages of education and facilities of communication you see at once it will not now well-bred people of course are extremely averse to mingling in the affairs of other families and had you merely taught a few favorites in a private way as i believe people now and then do it wouldn't have seemed so bad but to have regular provision for teaching school and school hours i think miss anne you'll find it will result in unpleasant consequences yes i fancy said anne raising herself up and slightly coloring that i see myself in the penitentiary for the sin and crime of teaching children to read i think mr bradshaw it is time such laws were disregarded is not that the only way in which many laws are repealed society outgrows them people disregard them and so they fall away like the calyx from some of my flowers come now mr bradshaw come with me to my school i'm going to call it together said anne rising and beginning to go down the veranda steps certainly my dear friend you ought not to judge without seeing wait a moment till i call miss gordon and anne stepped across the shady parlor and in a few moments reappeared with nina both arrayed in white cape bonnets they crossed to the right of the house to a small cluster of neat cottages each one of which had its little vegetable garden and its plot in front carefully tended with flowers they passed onward into a grove of magnolias which skirted the back of the house till they came to a little building with the external appearance of a small grecian temple the pillars of which were festooned with jessamine pray what pretty little place is this said mr bradshaw this is my schoolroom said anne mr bradshaw repressed a whistle of astonishment but the emotion was plainly legible in his face and anne said laughing a lady's schoolroom you know should be ladylike besides i wish to inspire ideas of taste refinement and self-respect in these children i wish learning to be associated with the idea of elegance and beauty they ascended the steps and entered a large room surrounded on three sides by blackboards the floor was covered with white matting and the walls hung with very pretty pictures of french lithographs tastefully colored in some places cards were hung up bearing quotations of scripture there were rows of neat desks before each of which there was a little chair anne stepped to the door and rang a bell and in about ten minutes the patter of innumerable little feet was heard ascending the steps and presently they came streaming in all ages from four or five to fifteen and from the ebony complexion of the negro with its closely curling wool to the rich brown cheek of the quadroon with melancholy lustrous eyes and waving hair all were dressed alike in a neat uniform of some kind of blue stuff with white capes and aprons they filed in to the tune of one of those marked rhythmical melodies which characterize the negro music and moving in exact time to the singing assumed their seats which were arranged with regard to age and size as soon as they were seated anne after a moment's pause clapped her hands and the whole school commenced a morning hymn in four parts which was sung so beautifully that mr bradshaw quite overpowered stood with tears in his eyes 
Anne nodded at Nina and cast on him a satisfied glance. After that, there was a rapid review of the classes. There was reading, spelling, writing on the blackboard, and the smaller ones were formed in groups in two adjoining apartments under the care of some of the older girls. Anne walked about superintending the whole, and Nina, who saw the scene for the first time, could not repress her exclamation of delight. The scholars were evidently animated by the presence of company, and anxious to do credit to the school and teacher, and the two hours passed rapidly away. Anne exhibited to Mr. Bradshaw specimens of the proficiency of her scholars in handwriting, and the drawing of maps, and even the copying of small lithograph cards, which contained a series of simple drawing patterns. Mr. Bradshaw seemed filled with astonishment. "'Pon my word,' said he, "'these are surprising. Miss Anne, you are a veritable magician, a worker of miracles. You must have found Aaron's rod again. My dear madam, you run the risk of being burned for a witch.' "'Very few, Mr. Bradshaw, know how much of beauty lies sealed up in this neglected race,' said Anne with enthusiasm. As they were walking back to the house, Mr. Bradshaw fell a little behind, and his face wore a thoughtful and almost sad expression. "'Well,' said Anne, looking round, "'a penny for your thoughts?' "'Oh, I see, Miss Anne, you are for pursuing your advantage. I see triumph in your eyes. But yet—' After all this display, the capability of your children makes me feel sad. To what end is it? What purpose will it serve except to unfit them for their inevitable condition, to make them discontented and unhappy? Well, there ought to be no inevitable condition that makes it necessary to dwarf a human mind. Any condition which makes a full development of the powers that God has given us a misfortune cannot certainly be a healthy one, cannot be right. If a mind will grow and rise, make way and let it, make room for it, and cut down everything that stands in the way. That's terribly leveling doctrine, Miss Anne. Let it level, then, said Anne. I don't care. I come from the old Virginia Cavalier blood, and I'm not afraid of anything." But, Miss Anne, how do you account for it that the best educated and best treated slaves, in fact, as you say, the most perfectly developed human beings, were those who got up the insurrection in Charleston? How do you account for it, said Anne, that the best developed and finest specimens of men have been those that have got up insurrections in Italy, Austria, and Hungary? Well, you admit then, said Mr. Bradshaw, that if you say A in this matter, you've got to say B. Certainly, and when the time comes to say B, I'm ready to say it. I admit, Mr. Bradshaw, that it's a very dangerous thing to get up steam if you don't intend to let the boat go. But when the steam is high enough, let her go, say I. Yes, but, Miss Anne, other people don't want to say so. The fact is, we are not all of us ready to let the boat go. It's got all our property in it, all we have to live on. If you're willing yourself, so far as your people are concerned, they'll inevitably want liberty, and you say you'll be ready to give it to them. But your fires will raise esteem on our plantations, and we must shut down these escape valves. Don't you see? Now, for my part, I've been perfectly charmed with this school of yours, but after all, I can't help inquiring whereto it will grow. 
well mr bradshaw i'm obliged to you for the frankness of this conversation it's very friendly and sincere i think however i shall continue to compliment the good sense and gallantry of this state by ignoring its unworthy and unchristian laws i will endeavor nevertheless to be more careful and guarded as to the manner of what i do but if i should be put into the penitentiary mr bradshaw i hope you'll call on me miss anne i beg ten thousand pardons for that unfortunate allusion i think i shall impose it as a penance upon you to stay and spend the day with us and then i'll show you my rose garden i have great counsel to hold with you on the training of a certain pillar rose you see my design is to get you involved in my treason you've already come into complicity with it by visiting my school thank you miss anne i should be only too honored to be your abettor in any treason you might meditate but really i'm a most unlucky dog think of my having four bachelor friends engaged to dine with me and so being obliged to decline your tempting offer in fact i must take horse before the sun gets any hotter there he goes for a good-hearted creature as he is said anne do you know said nina laughing that i thought he was some poor desperate mortal who was on the verge of a proposal this morning and i ran away like a good girl to give him a fair field child said anne you are altogether too late in the day mr bradshaw and i walked that little figure some time ago and now he is one of the most convenient and agreeable of friends anne why in the world don't you get in love with somebody my dear i think there was something or other left out when i was made up but i never had much of a fancy for the lords of creation they do tolerably well till they come to be lovers but then they are perfectly unbearable lions in love my dear don't appear to advantage you know i can't marry papa or edward and they have spoiled me for everybody else besides i'm happy and what do i want with any of them can't there be now and then a woman sufficient to herself but nina dear i'm sorry that our affairs here are giving offence and making uneasiness for my part said nina i should go right on i have noticed that people try all they can to stop a person who is taking an unusual course and when they are perfectly certain that they can't stop them then they turn round and fall in with them and i think that will be the case with you they certainly will have an opportunity of trying said anne but there is dulcimer coming up the avenue with the letter-bag now child i don't believe you appreciate half my excellence when you consider that i used to have all these letters that fall to you every mail at this moment dulcimer rode up to the veranda steps and deposited the letter-bag in anne's hands what an odd name you have given him said nina and what a comical-looking fellow he is he has a sort of waggish air that reminds me of a crow oh dulcimer don't belong to our regime said anne he was the prime minister and favorite under the former reign a sort of licensed court jester and to this day he hardly knows how to do anything but sing and dance and so brother who is for allowing the largest liberty to everybody imposes on him only such general and light tasks as suit his roving nature but there said anne throwing a letter on nina's lap and at the same time breaking the seal of one directed to herself ah i thought so you see puss 
Edward has some law business that takes him to this part of the state forthwith. Was ever such convenient law business? We may look for him to-night. Now there will be rejoicings. How now, Dulcimer, I thought you had gone, she said, looking up, and observed that personage still lingering in the shade of a tulip-tree near the veranda. Please, Miss Anne, is Master Clayton coming home to-night? Yes, Dulcimer, now go and spread the news, for that's what you want, I know. And Dulcimer, needing no second suggestion, was out of sight in the shrubbery in a few moments. Now I'll wager, said Anne, that creature will get up something or other extraordinary for this evening. Such as what? Well, he is something of a troubadour, and I shouldn't wonder if he should be cudgeling his brain at this moment for a song. We shall have some kind of operatic performance, you may be sure. End of chapter 28, Magnolia Grove